The statements expressed in the following program are those of the speaker. They do not necessarily represent the views and opinions of the sponsor, the hosts, and or Olas Media. Olas Media. You're listening to the Lawyer in Blue Jeans podcast. Welcome everyone to the Lawyer in Blue Jeans podcast. My name is Justin Isaac and today I have a very special guest. I am joined by Heather Ferbert. Uh, Heather, thank you for joining us. We appreciate it. I'm excited to be here. Thanks for having me. I have uh, I have a lot of questions for you. Uh, and uh, I know that there is a very important race coming up that you're a part of too. And that's why I wanted to have you on because uh, A, it's kind of what we do uh, or legally speaking. Um, but also it's important for anyone who's a citizen of San Diego. So why don't you give us a little bit of background, how you got here, where you're from, where you went to school, kind of stuff, all the general information. Sure. Yeah. So thanks for having me. I am uh, here because I'm running for San Diego City Attorney, which is an open seat this year. We're going to vote on San Diego City Attorney in 2024. Mm -hmm. I work in the city attorney's office. I've worked there almost 10 years. I'm currently a chief deputy city attorney. Uh, And I've been a municipal lawyer my entire career. I moved to San Diego about 20 years ago for law school. I went to University of San Diego School of Law. Before that, I was at Cal State Long Beach, and I grew up in Orange County. We fell in love with San Diego. So after law school, I never left. I was lucky to find a job. And we represented the San Diego Housing Commission. So it was my first job uh, as a lawyer out of law school. And that was municipal work because the Housing Commission is a city agency just like the city is. It's a part of the city. And we helped build affordable housing. We helped draft regulations to make more housing uh, be required by private developers. Mm -hmm. And we uh, protected the housing that exists. And I think that's really important in, especially in our housing market today, protecting and preserving the affordable housing that we have because we need more housing and losing any housing we have isn't going to help anybody. So, um, that's how I ended up here. You asked me. Um, so I'm in the office now in the city attorney's office. I currently work with our council members on their priorities and the independent city departments like the city auditor, or the city clerk, um, the city ethics commission. And so, so those are some of my current clients. When I started with the city, my first client department was Parks and Recreation, mm-hmm. which was um, insane amounts of fun. Mm-hmm. Um, they have great legal problems, really creative work. And, you know, they really are trying to make our city a more beautiful and better place. Mm -hmm. And, you know, trying to help fulfill that mission day in and day out was really rewarding and fulfilling. And I just, I loved that work. So I wish um, it was like the show Parks and Rec because that was a pretty funny show. It was a really funny show. And, you know, there are definitely some aspects to that show that are, that are in the truth. I think. Yeah, definitely. (laughs) Uh, Having worked for government now almost 20 years. Yeah. Yeah, There's definitely pieces. I was going to ask you that too. Did you ever foresee this being like your role going into politics, going to like government when you first started law school, is this what you envisioned? 
not really. I've been a self-proclaimed local government nerd my entire life. Uh-huh. Uh, I remember a couple of youth and government days. Um, I shouted a city attorney in the city of Huntington Beach where I grew up um, on one of those days. And so that was pretty cool. And I've always had an interest. Like I always realized, you know, when people hit a pothole or their trash isn't picked up, that impacts us on a very day-to-day, real-life basis. And mm-hmm. what happens at the federal level and the state level, super important, but we don't see it in our everyday life like True. we do with what the city government does. So it's always really resonated with me. So if you ask me when I was in law school, was this the plan? No. Mm-hmm. I went to law school and I had an interest in government and then the stars sort of aligned. And I think it was, you know, those were the jobs I was looking for with the housing commission and that municipal work. And it really just kind of forged the path. So, and I didn't go in with a plan yet. And I'm going to run for office by the time I'm, you know, before I'm 50 or something like that. There, there was no grand scheme. It's just kind of meshed and molded. Mm-hmm. And as our current city attorney's term was starting to come towards an end, that's when I decided, I started thinking about who should who should replace her. What kind of city attorney do I want to see? And I think that the city deserves a city attorney with a track record of results and successes mm-hmm. who wants to run the office like a law office. It's the city's biggest law office. It's mm-hmm. 170 attorneys that this city attorney manages and who wants to be in it to provide good legal advice to our elected officials who make the policy decisions day in and day out and isn't wanting to make the office overly political. Like It's impossible to say it's an apolitical office because it's an elected official, but I think the goal really needs to be to know the city attorney's role is to provide legal advice to those decision makers. And that's the mayor and the council, and they have to respond to the to their elect their voters. Okay. Right. So, um, that to me was a really critical piece. And then I started looking at the the things that are going around on around in the community, the problems that we're facing. And the more I thought about it, the more I realized my background really lines up well to help move the city forward. I've worked on homelessness since I worked for the Housing Commission. I've worked on housing issues. I mean, all of that experience, I'm ready to tackle. Those are two of the biggest problems facing the city of San Diego right now. Mm -hmm. And I'm ready to tackle them head on. I have all sorts of ideas to help our policymakers move the dial on that, continue to make progress, and hopefully make things better Mm -hmm. in both of those arenas. Um, And I think it's really important that we have an experienced city attorney who is willing to stand up for the public and make sure that our elected officials are complying with the law. We have two big real estate transactions coming forward at the city. Mm -hmm. And um, I know you hinted that you were going to bring up 101 Ash, but like we don't need a repeat with the Civic Center and Midway, right? And Mm -hmm. those are two huge projects that are coming up. We really need an independent city attorney who has the experience to know what to look for and the lessons we've learned from 101 Ash to make sure that we don't go down the same path and that we are getting projects that are going to serve our citizens Mm -hmm. to the fullest extent of the value of those properties. Okay, so let's go into it because you you said uh, a couple of things I want to ask you about. Um, Do you think that the city attorney has been too political in the past? I think we've seen examples Mm -hmm. in the city's history of more and less political city attorneys, and some have worked well and some have worked less well. Mm -hmm. And we saw that with... you know, I don't necessarily want to say, name. say many names. Okay. Um, but yeah, it's sometimes it doesn't work very well when the city attorney's office becomes too political because it drives 
the legal advice mm-hmm. um, and it skews it, right? Reasonable legal minds can differ. We know that as lawyers. Yeah. And if you are trying to fulfill an agenda, there's always a legal path to oh, kind yeah. of say like, you can't do this thing you're trying to do because I think it's wrong politically. Yeah. So that's the reason I bring this up too, is that I, I'm a lawyer, uh, obviously I'm, I hope you all know that uh, anyone who's listening. I don't think politics when I think of legal stuff. I, I, I look at the issues and yes, you can come to different interpretations, but I am never thinking how this would benefit my my political stance or you know moral stance or you know it, it's usually just like it, lawyers are truth finders. We want the truth. We want to seek the truth and what's the right answer, what's you know, not how do we make it fit. And that's why I kind of wanted to know about that, you know, whether if you think it's too political in the past and we've had some people who've tried to make things fit their agenda, you know, are you dedicated to making sure that that wouldn't be the case under, you know, if you were elected? Uh, yeah, I'm absolutely dedicated okay. to that. I think that our role is is a couple of things. One, right, making sure the city as the municipal corporation, as the client is complying with the law. Mm-hmm. It's providing legal advice to our elected officials and all of the departments and all of those people. But we're also looking out for the voters and making sure that taxpayer dollars are appropriately spent, mm-hmm. that contractors are being held accountable to their contracts and their agreements, that those dollars aren't getting misused because the last thing we need is the city's already limited budget being you know misappropriated or yeah. stolen through fraud or whatever's happening. And so we're doing all of that work and we do it through civil litigation, and we do it through civil advisory work, which is the role that I'm in right now, and mm-hmm. we're, we act like general counsel. And for the civil litigation, I, I agree with you, it's it's truth-finding, right? What's right, what's the law say? And it should be without politics involved in it. It should be what's the best for the city mm-hmm. as a whole, which includes the electeds, but also includes the public. And then with advisory, we are very much in the role of what's the process, what's the legal process, and how do we get to the goal? Mm-hmm. And in my opinion, the city attorney should be leading that advisory process with the goal being the goal of the decision makers who are the elected council members and mayor and then all of the people who've been appointed underneath of them. And so that's where we need to take the, make sure the politics stays out of both of those sides of it. Mm There is a little room for, I think, the city attorney to have um, influence in how the the, so the criminal division side works yeah. because the prosecution, we represent the people. It's an independent role from you know advising the municipal corporation. The office is split by an ethical wall. And so on that prosecution side, I see different things. And that's where we've seen our current city attorney be really successful with gun violence restraining orders, for example, mm-hmm. and, and being able to pursue some policies to make change that she has prioritized in her administration. Okay. So... I, I think uh, this is a good time to explain what does a city attorney do? You said uh, civil and then you mentioned criminal. Uh, for anyone who is out there who doesn't know the depths of the legal side or just you know law in general, you, you, you know you have civil, which would be lawsuits, right? Mm-hmm. in simple terms. Um, that'd be suing people suing each other. And then the criminal side is where uh, essentially you can look at like the city or the state is suing the individual for wrongdoing and then potentially, I wouldn't say suing, that's a bad way, prosecuting, right? Okay, so I I guess this all leads to the main question is what does the San Diego City Attorney do? What would your role be versus other, I guess, attorneys who work for the city or the, you know, county of San Diego? Yeah, so the city attorney's office is sort of unique. There are um, a few that are structured similarly throughout the state. Our office, the city attorney's office, is divided into three divisions. Uh, There's more nuance to it, but 
to keep it simple, yeah. we have a criminal division, and our criminal division prosecutes misdemeanors. So misdemeanors would be like a DUI when there's no major injuries. Sometimes even um, major injuries can cause a misdemeanor depending on the facts. We do domestic violence prosecution for uh, misdemeanor domestic violence types of things. We also, uh, code enforcement is mm. another big piece of our municipal prosecution. So somebody has a property that doesn't comply with the code, yeah. right? They've done an illegal garage conversion, for example, pretty common. Yeah. So that's what our criminal division does. They also have some unique programs, the gun violence restraining order program. Um, and I am not remembering any of it's the other okay. ones at the moment. I'm sure that there, I know there are other ones and I, they've just escaped me. I didn't write them down. And then we have our civil side. Our civil side is split in two. We have civil litigation, which is the lawsuits. Um, the city gets sued all the time. Every time uh, somebody trips on a sidewalk mm -hmm. and hurts themselves, the city is frequently sued in those circumstances, especially if they're injured. Car accidents between city drivers and, and a member of the public. Um, we defend the police department in use of force cases. Mm -hmm. um, and so any kind of civil litigation would come into our office and we would take that on. We also do all of the land use defense. So when the development is sued over CEQA, for example, the environmental laws, uh, we're taking on all of that. And our civil litigation also has an affirmative uh, civil enforcement. So they are doing consumer protection type work. Okay. So the one that I always remember is, if you'll recall, um, before COVID, the city raised the minimum wage and a lot of the restaurants started putting a surcharge yeah. on their menus, but a lot of them didn't. There were several restaurants who didn't say it was a percentage surcharge. They just kind of tacked it on the bill. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's a violation of the consumer protections. You needed to be able to notify patrons of your restaurant that they were going to be paying that additional fee. So the city attorney took that case on, challenged those couple of restaurants to make sure that people who were dining there weren't surprised by an added 5% or 10%, whatever it was. Mm -hmm. um, so we do that work. And then there's civil advisory, which is where I am, and we act like general counsel. So we are providing legal advice to all of the city employees, the mayor, the council, we're reviewing city contracts. We're negotiating property transactions. We write the municipal code. So mm -hmm. it's one of my favorite things about being a municipal lawyer is helping the um, council draft municipal codes. Mm -hmm. And uh, that's going to be the law that the public has to comply with. Okay. So, but, and you mentioned uh, criminal and civil, but you said criminal misdemeanor. So you don't cover large uh, criminal, like felonies and whatnot, right? Correct. Felonies all go to the district attorney. Okay. Yeah. I think that's what a lot of people get confused yeah. with because they think, okay, well, city attorney, obviously that means it has to do something with uh, felonies and major crimes and, and things like that, but that does not go through your office. Correct. Okay. Um, so with these, you know, 170 attorneys, you know, you have a lot of experience in this. I, I'm trying to think, I have so many questions that come with that, uh, but what would you do different? Let's give you this opportunity to kind of say, this is your platform. What would you do different than previous city attorneys in the past? You don't have to name names or, mm -hmm. or give specifics on what they did wrong. Um, give us a, give us your pitch. Sure. I personally, I would, when I'm elected, I have a plan to create a housing protection unit, mm -hmm. which would preserve the affordable housing we have today because as we said earlier housing is a crisis in southern california throughout california and we can't afford to lose the housing we have we all know we need to build more but we need to protect what we've got and so that's more robust code enforcement making sure that properties aren't being illegally converted to commercial use mm -hmm. and one of my particular interests is making sure our short-term rental ordinance is 
uh, actually enforced and vigorously enforced. Mm -hmm. I helped draft that with a council member. And these rules that we draft, these codes that we draft, are only as good as the follow-through and enforcement of them, right? You know, law on a paper is just law on a paper. Yeah. Uh, So, you know, I think that that short-term rental ordinance was designed to put units back into the rental market with the hopes that, you know, people who didn't get a license would then rent them out for families Mm -hmm. who want to stay in San Diego. And so I think it's really important to do that kind of work and to make sure that we have a focus on housing. So it's one thing I think that I would definitely take on. I think that the city attorney's office can be more proactive. We hear a lot of times, and I don't know how much this is outside of the city walls, but that our office can be very slow. And so because legal work takes time and it can be complicated. And so Mm -hmm. we want to make sure we're doing a good job. But I'd like to see us be more proactive. And we can do that by looking at the city's budget. Every year, our decision makers or the people we vote in decide what our priorities are going to be, what the policies of the city are going to be through that budget. And we can really take a dive and look at that and be more proactive and align our resources mm-hmm. because every city department is strapped, including ours, right, for resources. When we hear this all over the news, um, you know, the short the shortage of employees and yeah. how it's taking longer and longer to do anything. So I think we can be a little bit more proactive and try to better align our resources with the priorities of the city. Um, so that's another one of the things I would really like to see, yeah. um, you know. I, I think these are. I think it's important that we also have just some continuity as well. We have somebody with experience who understands how the city works mm-hmm. and can keep moving things forward, can keep providing good legal advice, um, and understands how the city works. So, I, I have a question because I had someone who I, I spoke with a friend of mine who is developing a project and uh, a, a housing project, um, and has mentioned how long it's taken, and I. I could be wrong. I'm just going to kind of throw this out there and you let me know if this is a uh, a mischaracterization of how it actually works or if there's more pieces to it or what have you. Um, it, it's been well over a year and uh, the development of this project. And in a simplified version, my friend said, well, why didn't they just hire more people to approve low-income housing and or new developments which would in turn bring the housing crisis, you know, down, uh, but also bring more tax revenue in too. So it's kind of a win-win. So why can't we dedicate funds to, I guess, to the budget to hire more people uh, to speed up projects? Mm-hmm. Is that too, is that oversimplified? Uh, slightly okay. because it's government. Yeah. Um, <laughs> I yeah. So I would actually <laughs> the auditor just released an audit this week, last week, about the city's hiring process mm-hmm. and how it's mired in bureaucracy yeah. and needs to be looked at. And I know that our development services department, who would be the one processing those types of permits, has had, I don't even want to guess the number, but like a boatload of vacancies. Yeah. I want to say it's like at least 100 or more vacancies okay. in these pro- people who are going to be processing these permits. And they've been trying to fill it. And the mayor at his last state of the city announced that he'd reached an agreement with the labor unions who represent city employees to actually hire contractors mm-hmm. to help fill the backlog. Because between COVID and retirement and the struggles that we're having hiring, I think also in part due to the loss of the pension for a short for a period of time, all of those things have created this perfect storm that every department is understaffed and has a huge number of openings. And we're just having a lot of trouble getting people who want to come work for the city, stay mm-hmm. with the city, 
uh, and then actually get up to speed to do the work. And so it, you're right. Like, theoretically, you could put more money to it and hire those people. But we're having problems actually getting people who want to come and do the work. So why do you think it's uh, why do you think we're having that problem? It, do you think it's compensation? Do you think it's a lack of desire to work in the city or government or what would it be? I think the pension, the loss of the pension was a big part of it. Okay. Um, based on what I've seen, and I was hired post Prop B, so I didn't have the benefit of the pension. One of the crazy people who like jumped in anyways, because mm-hmm. I just love this work. Um, I do think that it's had a toll because it doesn't encourage people to stay. Mm-hmm. And so they'll come in for a couple of years, get some training, and then go. And compensation, I think, is higher in other jurisdictions or with the county. I know... Our office, we lose attorneys to private practice, to the county, to the AG's office. Yeah. You know, it's really hard to compete with uh, what private salaries could be, especially in the legal arena. Yeah. Yeah, I think that I I had a feeling it was oversimplified in that sense. But it makes sense, though, that the more people that we have, the quicker we can process things, the quicker we can mm-hmm. get tax revenue in, which brings in more money for more to, you know, kind of stabilize the um, the jobs. And I understand that it's hard, especially with COVID. There's been so much movement with people in so many different industries. Um, and it's really hard keeping especially good people. So I know that the city is going to have a problem just as much as a private enterprise would have yeah. that problem too. Um, you did mention earlier, I want to kind of pivot a little bit here, uh, homelessness. Mm-hmm. Huge problem in San Diego. Yep. It seems like it's gotten worse. Yes. Like, uh, objectively, I don't look at the numbers. I haven't looked at the numbers recently. I live in Little Italy, so I can see it. Yep. Um, what can we do? Oh, all, wh- what we've done so far, and this is me being, call me pessimistic, or, or I don't know what you would call me. I think that we've thrown a lot of money at this, and we keep on throwing more money at this, and it keeps on getting worse. I don't know if I'm right. I feel like I'm right. Mm-hmm. Uh, but what would we do differently? How can we fix this? Because it doesn't feel like it's getting any better over the years. I agree. Homelessness is exploding on our streets, and we see yeah. it. And you're, you're. I'm downtown. You're in Little Italy. I mean, it's especially congregated there, yeah. and it's a huge problem. It's not humane for the people experiencing homelessness. Mm-hmm. It's not healthy and safe for the residents living nearby. It's bad all around. I, I do think that, in part, we're seeing the the ramifications of COVID and of spiking rents. And so people who were already living paycheck to paycheck and were being able to make their rents have now fallen into homelessness because the rents have been raised Mm -hmm. or that one bad thing has happened and they don't have the reserve or a family member to fall back on. And I think that's a lot of the experience. I think we're also seeing it more prevalently because we don't have the mental health and substance use support. And those are the most visible, most concerning people on the street that we see, right? The the people who break my heart are the people who you can tell are not okay. And you don't really know what to do, right? I'm reluctant to call the police officers because that can just be escalated and it's not really the right resource for them. The mental health and social work that I know that the city has and the county is working on it to increase those Mm -hmm. resources so that we have a more rapid response, that we have that kind of wrapper, they call it wrapper on services to really take that person and help them find whatever path it is Mm -hmm. um, and services that they need, depending on what the, what the situation is. I think that's part of the reason why homelessness has been such a hard to solve problem, honestly, Mm -hmm. is there are so many reasons somebody is home. Somebody becomes homeless. Yeah. Right. It can be economic. It can be, uh, mental health, it can be substance abuse, it can be one or the other or both of mental health and substance abuse. We see a lot of that coexisting. 
And trying to find solutions for that entire spectrum can be really challenging. And then we're talking about everyone's individualized needs. You have a family, and the solution for a family is different than a solution for a senior, is different than a solution for somebody who is a foster youth who's now aged out of the system and doesn't have any kind of support. So all of those interventions need to match, and I think that's part of the problem as well, is the system doesn't have enough to kind of scoop that entire group up. And we're seeing this influx and I think partly, and a big part, it's the housing costs because a lot of people would be able to make it month to month yeah. if housing was more reasonable for what their means are. And because, like, my biggest concern, we're seeing a lot of our seniors getting priced out, and yeah. so they're resorting to living in their cars or the streets. Yeah. And there's no way for them to increase their income to meet the rents as they rise. Yeah. Right. I think. I, I mean, Prop 13 is one thing that has probably kept are people who've been living here forever from being forced to move too. So I'm, I'm glad that's still in place because we have that kind of security for them. But when it comes to, I had a way that I wanted, okay, so the homelessness issue, I've heard someone say that, you know, we used to have these uh, state hospitals, mental institutions where people could go and, and we don't have those anymore. Is that a solution in one way or another to open these hospitals back up or open up facilities like that that can help with this? Because I, I don't know the percentages, but I know that a lot of them, a lot of people have issues that are not just drug related. So they need some legitimate help. And I, I know that we have resources for people and a lot of it is mobile, right? Because mm-hmm. they're mobile, too. Mm-hmm. Um, how how can we, like you said, wrap our arms around this to to make sure that our our funds are going to the right place because you said, you know, just in the hiring process or or you said, uh, yeah, in the hiring process, there's bureaucracy there and it's government. So there's bureaucracy Mm -hmm. everywhere. How do we minimize the bureaucracy when it comes to something that we throw a lot of money at Mm -hmm. um, to make sure that we're being efficient? Yeah, I think it's evaluating the best practices, trying to streamline the processes as much as we can, mm-hmm. and taking advantage of some of the flexibility the state has given us. So the state has, and it's been in effect for a long time, but they've really leaned into it, a shelter crisis declaration. And mm-hmm. the city declares a shelter crisis declaration. We look at the number of people counted in the point-in-time count, which we know is probably an undercount and a snapshot in time. We look at the number of shelter beds being offered, and we say, yeah, there's a disproportionate number of people who are unsheltered versus the shelter beds we have available. So there's a crisis. And then that allows the city some flexibility in planning and zoning laws, housing, you know, nothing that would impact health and safety of the occupants, but it does provide some amount of relief from some of the steps that the city has to go through in opening a new shelter, for example. Mm -hmm. But there's still other steps. And so I think there's always efficiencies we can find to try and cut the bureaucracy as much as possible to stand things up more quickly. And I think that this could be replicated. And it's not just homelessness. It's a lot of the city's problems. How do we make the system more efficient, especially in this day and age? Just like the law doesn't catch up with the technology, I think the city is slow to catch up. Government generally is slow to catch up with technology. But I do think there are probably efficiencies to be had there. Your your point about the institutions being um, disbanded Mm -hmm. is a really good one. I think that in my experience, I've seen the problem grow to be kind of a systemic underinvestment in a lot of our social services 
throughout the country. Yeah. And we got rid of institutions. And I know they were ripe with problems. And I'm not necessarily suggesting that they should come back. But we didn't put anything in their place. And yeah. so there aren't those services for people who need them. And it's not just people on the street. We have families. I hear stories of parents who have kids who are struggling with mental illness. And they don't have resources to help them either. Mm-hmm. So um, the lack of a replacement is, is part of the problem. I've been... Like happy, I was really excited to see the county making some movement on the substance abuse and mental health piece because all of the state's dollars, and I think this is one piece where maybe everybody will uh, remember, like what the city does and what the county does. There's some confusion about that. Yeah, the city has zero dollars for mental health or substance abuse. That is a hundred percent a county function. Yeah. So everything we do. We are limited in that, into the extent we can provide shelter beds, but we need a contract or funds from the county or another agency to help if we're going to provide substance abuse treatment yeah. in addition to that. So it's definitely continuing to build a partnership. I'm hopeful that the county will continue to be um, supportive in those efforts and and lean into their place in it because they definitely have a role to play in this problem. Is there any desire to look at other similarly situated municipalities who have a homeless issue like we do and to see what model they've done that works um, and maybe copy it or or take some benefits from that too? Because I, I, I know, I don't know obviously as much as you do, but I'm just from an outside observer, this is obviously a major problem that I'm hoping that we are trying to really solve and and anything and every everything that we can do we should do in my opinion yeah right to make sure that our, our dollars are spent wisely that the safety because it can be very unsafe sometimes um for some people um in certain areas so to make sure that we are we're tackling this with every available you know possibility and, and you know idea but you know i think that should be like welcome all ideas, mm-hmm. right? That's the way I'm looking at it. Yeah, if uh, if somebody you know has figured out the solution, please. Well, like, not necessarily I, but, figured out, but even ideas. Yeah. I agree with you, and we are constantly. I know I do uh, look at other jurisdictions, see what they're doing. What's the litigation in mm-hmm. other jurisdictions too? To you know, because part of our job is to mitigate litigation. Yeah. As an advisory attorney, right? I joke that sometimes I'm not successful, and that's job security for our litigators. But um, we do our best to try and and either write the laws or draft the contracts in a way that's going to keep us out of court. And we're constantly looking at other jurisdictions to see what they've done, mm-hmm. what's being what's being litigated, how can we avoid that, or what are they doing that might work. I think that my counterparts in the mayor's office who work on homelessness are doing the same thing. We do a lot of conversations about, like, have we looked at here and there? Mm-hmm. I think there are some differences, but, I mean, yeah, I'm always willing to look at what other cities have done. I don't believe in reinventing the wheel. If somebody's doing something well, yeah. it's a good starting point. Yeah, I... I in my office, I tell my, you know, uh, staff all the time, if if you think we can do something better, tell me. I have no ego. I don't care. I'm not going to be offended. I want to know what's going to make it the most efficient. I think that's, um, you know, no offense to government. It's the problem sometimes is that we're inefficient in government and we, we have waste or we have, you know, bureaucracy that slows things down. Um, and that's why, you know, if there's a solution out there, whether it be a complete solution or a partial, like we should be taking in, you know, everything. And I'm, I'm glad to hear you say that, too. Um, I have, uh, I know we're kind of short on time. Uh, we have a couple more minutes, but I want to ask you a few more things. Mm-hmm. We don't need to rush through it. We'll just do two more questions. Um, the first one, one-on-one Ash, mm-hmm. what went wrong? Honestly, I think the city got steamrolled. Like, really? I think the city got steamrolled. How's that? I think that there were a handful of people involved, mm-hmm. deeply involved, 
and forced the issue and rushed it through. And for me, the biggest takeaway is if somebody approaches the eighth largest city in the country Mm -hmm. and says, you have to vote on this tomorrow or this deal will go away, Mm -hmm. that should be a huge red flag. Agreed. Right? Eighth largest city in the country. If you can't wait for us to do our due diligence, this is not a deal we want. And I think that we necessary we need a city attorney who's willing to say that mm-hmm. willing to put the brakes on it if we and i think part of the problem is we don't not everybody knows right it's a big bureaucracy it's a big moving machine and who knows what is a lot of times part of the problem yeah and so making sure that communication is open making sure the relationships are strong so that we can have those conversations and ideally they play out in private because they're attorney client conversations yeah but sometimes you need a city attorney who's willing to stand up and say this is wrong and yeah. i try to tell you and and you're continuing to go forward with it. And so the public needs to be aware, too. And so that's when we sometimes provide our legal advice in a council meeting, for example. So, okay, looking back on this, um, would you have stopped the whole process? Did you think that it was mishandled by the previous or the city attorney under? I don't think we knew. Okay. Yeah, I really don't think we knew. I don't think we had all of the facts. So when you say the city got steamrolled, are you saying that... Uh, the people selling the building steamrolled the city or the people who uh, were in charge of making that decision were the ones who kind of laid down? I don't think I have enough facts to answer that question. Okay. Yeah. Because I, I think that the, the way I look at it, you know, from my limited knowledge, I am just an outside observer. Um, when I hear that the city got steamrolled, that makes me think that we, the, the city itself, the city attorneys and any, everyone in the government was uh, put in a position where they didn't have any choice uh, and they were put under pressure and they had to make the decision and they were unfairly um, taken advantage of in one way or another. Some people might argue that the city screwed up a lot in this situation too. So would that be a fair assessment or... Yeah, I think there, you know, the, the, what is the quintessential mistakes were made, yeah. right? Like, I think all around, the, yeah. yeah, there was definitely a huge lesson to be learned. And there were tons of mistakes all along the way. Um, I was going to say something and it just blanked on it. It's uh, okay. Yeah. I don't know. Quite, quite, <laughs> what, we could say it's a quite costly mistake. Yes, absolutely. And when we, see, this is what kind of gets me sometimes too, is that when there's a costly mistake like this, uh, we as the city, we as the taxpayers have to pay for it Mm -hmm. and did anyone get let go fired i I don't think there's anything that rose to prosecution there wasn't anything that rose to that level to my knowledge right i did see that jason hughes's license is under evaluation now by the real estate the department of real estate i thought i saw that in the paper recently um there are several people who were involved in that transaction who are no longer with the city for for whatever reasons um i would hope that it would be because of the reason that things were, you know, done incorrectly or like you would hope that it would be mm-hmm. causal and not just incidental that they're no right. longer there. Um, if, if there were charges to be brought for anything that would rise to the criminal level, we would hope the reason right. I bring this up is that so many times things happen in the city where, or in the country, right? Mm-hmm. Remember in 2008, 2009, and all these bankers did all these things. I'm not going to get into that right now, but the main thing is, is that no one was prosecuted except for one guy who got prosecuted for like something that had nothing to do with it. There was one banker who got prosecuted. Mm-hmm. And the same thing goes in this where, you know, holding people accountable is an important thing for for citizens. And, and it's important to me, too. Yeah. And so when we are on the hook for millions of dollars because of mistakes were made, 
people want to ensure that people are held accountable. Right. And that, I guess, is my main question is that, you know, as the city attorney, are you going to make sure that that would be the case? A, I'm sure, you, you know, you're, you said you're dedicated to make sure we don't get to that point in the first place. Right. However, right. if mistakes are made, will people be held accountable? Yeah. I think that there's a couple of things in that. I do think it's really important that people are held accountable. To some extent, it goes beyond our office's ability to do that. If it mm -hmm. rises to a felony, yeah. the best we can do is refer that to the district attorney. Yes. And then we hope that they find the facts to support prosecution. Yeah. And remember, a prosecutor needs to be able to believe they can win their case beyond a reasonable doubt. So Absolutely. it's even even higher threshold yeah. than a civil litigation. I know there was a lot of civil litigation that our, that our office engaged in mm -hmm. to try and remedy the situation and to try and get some of that money back. And we did successfully get some money back. It was a settlement, right? And then yeah. there was a controversy around that as well, where our office thought that we pr could prevail in litigation and actually get more money back, but the council wanted to settle. They're the client. They're the decision makers, so they get to make that choice. Yeah. So um, I think that, yeah... Ideally, you you avoid the situation. Things yeah. slow down. We take a breath and say, wait a second, like, this isn't right. But if it does go wrong, yeah, I think people need to be held accountable through whatever means there are. And sometimes yeah. it's civil, sometimes it's criminal. Maybe it's a combination of both, which yeah. is what we're seeing through 101 Ash, really, because I think um, there was at least... I'm trying to remember what was in the paper so that I don't disclose anything. Although, for the record, I was not involved in 101 Ash at all. And so okay. I probably know about it as much as you do, other than being a, you know, kind of very interested observer and watching all of the council meetings because it's part of my job. And yeah. That, you know, but, you know, I wasn't involved, so I don't know exactly what happened or, or what went wrong. The details, right? Yeah. You know, I have some. Like we all do, I have my own suspicions and thoughts, but yeah, um, yeah, yeah. From from an outside observer, there are certain things that I saw that the you know things were overlooked in contracts, ignored in contracts, and you know those are hard to <laughs> those are hard to argue against, and and it's hard to say that there's that people that the city didn't know. Um, I don't know all the details as well, too. I just know that it's a hot button issue in San Diego. Mm -hmm. um, and I would be remiss if I didn't bring it up. Yeah, here. absolutely. So, um, and speaking of being remiss, uh, the last question I have for you, uh, your opponent, uh, there is some controversy, uh, who's, uh, I think it's Brian Mainshine is also running for city attorney. And there's some controversy about his eligibility. Um, you don't have to go into details about him in general, but just kind of break down the, I guess the issue at hand here. What's the argument that, uh, he might not be eligible. Is yeah. That? So I wrote down the language in the charter. So Perfect. our charter is like our constitution, right? Yeah. And it's the governing document. And so our charter says the city attorney must be licensed to practice law in the state of California and must have been so licensed for at least 10 years at the time he or she submits nominating petitions. Okay. So really licensed to practice law in the state, so licensed for at least 10 years. That's the, the operating kind mm -hmm. of language that we're dealing with. So the issue is what does licensed to practice law mean? Is it admitted and so it doesn't matter if you have an inactive or an active license, mm. or is it you've had an active license for 10 years because you're licensed to practice law? My position is the Business and Professions Code says it's a misdemeanor if I practice law with an inactive license. Yeah. So license to practice law should mean an active license. Okay. My opponent's license has only been active for about six and a half years. So by the time, even if he is successful, by the time November 2024 hits, he won't get to 10 years total active licensing. And that's the issue. So that's the, is he six and a half years total duration or just current? Total duration over, so he was admitted, I don't know all the, so he's been admitted for about 23 years, I think that's right. 
but he's only had the active license from like 1994 to 1999. And then he had like a six month activity in 2008 when he ran for city attorney and he's become active again, mm. I don't know, six months ago. Okay. So it never adds up to 10. Even if you say it doesn't have to be 10 years prior to running, mm-hmm. even if you look at the totality, yeah. in my career, have I been actively licensed? He won't get to 10 years by November 2024. Okay. Interesting. So what's the current status of that? So the city attorney, um, once it was raised, the city attorney hired outside counsel to keep, yeah, yeah, keep it, our office away from it, especially because I'm in the office, yep. right? It's the, this is the right move. I completely agree with her decision to do that. So it's with, my understanding is it's with outside counsel. Okay. I, I know that outside counsel was approved by city council earlier this summer and I don't know anything else since. So we wait and see. Okay. Um, and ultimately, I think the decision will have to be made if and when he files nominating papers, which happens in like the November timeframe. Okay. So to be determined on eligibility. To be is determined. there is there anyone else other than uh, Brian Bainshine? No, not yet. Interesting. Hmm. Um, okay. I... Uh, I think that's all the questions I had. I mean, I, we could sit here and talk forever because I had <laughs> a lot of other questions, but I do want to make this kind of brief for people who are listening. Yeah. Just, you know, highlights what you're doing, what you're all about, and, you know, some of your talking points. So uh, any last words for anyone? Um, you know, I'd be happy to chat with anybody about it. I think I'm super passionate about the city. I think it's an amazing place. And I think that we deserve, the people deserve somebody who's ready to hit the ground running. I mean, the analogy I keep using is do you want the... Uh, policymaker at the FAA flying you across the country or do you want the pilot who does it every single day? I mean, I think the choice is clear. I think I would definitely want the pilot flying me across the country. So I think that's what the city needs. It's a, it's an active law office. We run, we do this work every single day. Yeah. And it's a skill that we develop over time through practicing. Mm-hmm. You're a lawyer. Our listeners are mostly lawyers. You know, this is a skill that we are constantly improving and 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 progressing on and yeah. it's different it's different than a legislative or a policymaker yeah. and i just think it's really important that we have somebody who's ready to go because the city has a lot to tackle perfect well heather thank you very much i appreciate it um if you want more information heatherferber.com to get more information uh to find out more and you know look into what her platforms are and all the information like that too um so thank you very much for joining us appreciate it thanks for having me Thank you, everyone, for listening. This has been the Lawyer in Blue Jeans podcast. My name is Justin Isaac, and we'll see you next time. Take a break from the news and join us at Lawyer in Blue Jeans. If you're curious about the latest wacky cases or have a specific legal inquiry, drop us an email at justin at lawyerinbluejeans.com. Follow us and subscribe to stay up to date with our latest episodes. Thanks for listening to Lawyer in Blue Jeans. Be sure to follow and subscribe whenever you listen to your podcasts. To read the blog associated with this episode, visit olasmedia.com. This episode was produced in studios located in San Diego, California and Tijuana, Baja, California. Creative Director Ulysses Breton. Sound Engineer Alan Glespar. Lena Alvarez is the producer. Serving as Executive Producer and Co-Founder is J.C. Polk. And Chad Peace is President and Co-Founder. Olas Media is an IVC media company. Olas Media.